0: hey i'm nolan hi i'm Consoria.
1: hey this is grace and i'm sawi we're your hosts you're listening to ask your public health friend the podcast where we answer all of your questions using a public health perspective Hello, hello. Welcome back to an all new episode of Ask Your Public Health Friend. Today, we have Consoria, Grace, and me, Sally. We are missing Nalin today, but stay with us because we have an interesting discussion that lies ahead. All right, let's kick things off with some need-to-know news updates. Consoria, what do you have to share
0: with our listeners? The news that I wanted to share is that the first COVID-19 vaccine is in the current experimental trial right now. It's also called the mRNA-1273, and its result was published this week on Tuesday, July 14th. So this experimental vaccine, it's being developed by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and Moderna Incorporated. It's currently in phase one and it's supposed to, quote unquote, induce neutralizing antibodies directed at a portion of the coronavirus spike protein, which the virus uses to bind to and enter human cells. Uh, The trial started in March 16 and is led by Dr. Lisa A. Jackson in Seattle, Washington, and it consisted of 45 participants, ages 18 to 55, and of those 45 participants, they were split into three groups of 15 people, and each group received two intramuscular injections 28 days apart with doses of either 25, 100, or 250 micrograms. Uh, For the first injection, all 45 people got it, and for the second dose, uh, only 42 people got it. And as for the results of uh, this trial, there were no serious adverse events reported. Uh, More than half of the participants reported uh, symptoms of fatigue, headache, chills, myalgia, or pain at the injection site. For systemic adverse events, uh, it was more common for those who received the second dose Uh, and for those who receive the highest dosages. And then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the vaccine is supposed to produce the neutralizing antibodies. And so it it created levels that were comparable to those who survived COVID-19. So this is hopeful and positive news so far, as I've read online from other researchers. They also extended this trial to older adults who are more likely to be affected by COVID-19, but they haven't released the results for that yet since they came in later. But they're hoping to have this vaccine by the end of this year, which is like a record breaking speed, I guess. Thank you for the news update,
1: Consoria. Now let's get into today's questions and discussion. The questions we'll be answering in today's episode were submitted by our listener, Josh S. Josh wants to know what we think about healthcare workers, such as doctors or nurses, and public health practitioners working together to better serve patients and the public.
2: You know, I think it might be a good idea to call up one of our public health friends to help us answer these questions. What do you all think? Yes, Grace. I know someone who can help us out.
3: Hi, how are you girls? It's been a
0: while. How are you, Irene?
3: I'm good, (laughs) thank you. The good thing is that uh, here it's already almost 7pm, so it's easy (laughs) to meet after work.
2: Would you please tell us about something that you are doing in Spain?
3: For fun or for work? (laughs) For (laughs) For work. work. (laughs) Yes. For fun. But actually, well, I guess you all know, but the lockdown started pretty early in Spain, and we've been locked down for three months, more or less. We started to go out like a few weeks ago. And basically what I've been doing since I arrived in Murcia, which is my local town in the southeast of Spain, is working at the hospital in the preventive medicine and public health department. So I have been working at the hospital organizing the isolation for covid patients, registering the cases, uh, making contact tracing and then uh, organizing ppes for healthcare workers. That's those are like the main duties and then besides that I have been involved in like several projects, research projects to try to address this pandemic. Like now we're working on the development of a test based on a saliva sample that can measure antibodies. And we're trying to validate that. And then I've been also, and I am involved in a mental health study to evaluate the impact of this pandemic in the mental health of the of healthcare workers mainly, but also the general population. And then I've been doing work on uh, education, like health education for the general population. Uh, we launched a YouTube channel for which we are preparing a bunch of videos now about myths and truth about the COVID, <laughs> the Chinese in Spanish, but <laughs> if you want to take it out and mainly that. And now I'm in the process of trying to finalize projects and advance the things that I can and leave things ready to go back to New York. I can tell you it's been a lot, and it's a lot, and, but I guess when you're with all the adrenaline, and actually what I used to talk with my family, my, my, my parents were worried about me, like, okay, you need to, like, sleep, and I was like, I know, but this is like a health crisis, it's a public health crisis, and it's the time to act, I will get time to sleep afterwards, but it's true that now I need to take that serious, because I've been working, like, I don't know, 16 hours a day, weekends included. And yes, that's that's been a lot. But the situation demanded it. So I I am happy with that and also I'm young. And I mean, I've also heard a lot about all the students at Columbia and this is the time for public health people to do something, right? As you girls are doing. So this is our time and I felt committed to that.
1: We want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We also want our listeners to know who you are. So Irene is a classmate of ours from Millman, and she is also an MPH student in the Environmental Health Sciences Department. Before she started at Columbia, Irene earned her Master of Health Management and her medical degree and as you just learned, she is also a Fulbright Scholar. Today Irene, or Dr. Martinez Morata, is back in her home country of Spain where she is joining us and where she is serving as a physician, treating patients and helping her community navigate through COVID-19. Again, thank you so much. And welcome to Ask Your Public Health Friend, Dr. Martinez Morata. It's so great to have you. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Thank you. (laughs) It's my pleasure to be here today.
1: All right, so the first question is, what health inequities would you, as public health students, highlight as the most ominous in the US? And how would you want physicians to help address this?
3: Thank you so much. your question if i had to choose one inequality at first uh, i would go for accessibility to healthcare i think from the moment someone somebody doubts about going to the hospital or going to see a physician just because they won't be able to pay for it that's a structural inequality that is impairing a lot of u.s citizens and citizens around the world actually to receive the care that they need. And this is something that has been put out there during the COVID-19 epidemic because many people don't have insurance and everybody should have the right to go to the doctor or to the emergency room and to receive the best care ever, regardless of of their economic status or their their work, work status or any other thing. And also another, structural inequality that I think is remarkable in the United States and also worldwide, as far as I can say from my experience, is uh, racism. We see studies every day where we can notice that the burden of disease on minorities and people from uh, different races than the white typical white American uh, are suffering from a greater burden of diseases like maternal mortality, infectious diseases, diabetes, cardiovascular, and now COVID-19 as expected. So I think from both perspectives, from a medical doctor and from a health healthcare professional, I have seen these both inequalities in theory in the studies, but also in my daily practice. The thing is that public health practitioners and medical doctors, we have a very good position to start changing this reality from the base because we can do things in our everyday work. For example, making an individual exercise anytime we attend someone, regardless to attend them the same way, regardless of their race, their appearance, if they look poorer or richer, doesn't matter. We need to sometimes Because of this society, sometimes we just need to stop and think that everyone is the same. And even if somebody doesn't look like we do, we should make an active exercise to do that. And not only for ourselves, but also for our colleagues. Because I guess everyone that has been in an ER or at the doctor as a patient or as a medical doctor has seen around or as a public health practitioner has seen some comments or things that are usually seen as harmless, but no comment is harmless, and no little thing is harmless. And there we are to change things individually for us, starting from ourselves, and then continue with our colleagues, with the general population, because we are also an authority. We are a health authority since the moment we start working and in our lives. Since the moment we receive our diploma as healthcare professional, we become a health authority. And in, with that in our hand, we can go and act for these inequalities to change. And also, fortunately, healthcare professionals and medical, doctor have, medical doctors have a position in society that allows us to advocate for change, not only at the individual scale, but we can organize ourselves. We can join associations that defend human rights and that defend the fight against racism and against against unequal accessibility to healthcare. So I think there are many ways in which healthcare professionals and public health professionals can address these inequalities. And we can start every day, and then from that to the top. <laughs>
1: That's good. And I, I do want to say that I actually wrote down access to healthcare as well as sort of like this gatekeeping issue in the United States where you mentioned the fear of even having to go to the doctor and that in of itself stops patients from pursuing the healthcare that they need. And I recently came across this New York Times article that reported from the months of February to May of this year, five and a half million Americans. Who were once insured lost their health insurance because of COVID-19. And so, you know, in 2018, there was also the CDC reported that nine and a half percent of all persons, all ages in the U.S. were uninsured. And that was about 30 and a half million people. I can't imagine that there was a huge or a significant change from 2018 to 2020. But if you're tacking on five and a half more, five and a half million more Americans who are now uninsured, I mean, that's got to be a big deal. And now we're not, you know, we're no longer talking about just access to healthcare, but also maintaining healthcare, because in some cases, it does depend on whether or not you're employed. I'm also curious to know your thoughts about this, because, you know, the, our listener who submitted this question asked, like, how would you want physicians to help address this? And I wrote down as I was thinking through this, like, well, I guess for starters, maybe we can start, you know, investing in preventative care so that we can avoid like these chronic illnesses, or maybe we can stop doing unnecessary tests and over-treating patients for the sake of profit and get rid of fee-for-service payment methods and maybe look for an alternative method. So I don't know if, if you have any thoughts about that, but that's just something that came to mind from just knowing that, you know, a physician's role in healthcare does play a significant role and how affordable it can be.
0: Yes,
3: I completely agree. Actually, another data that we learned is that in the United States, there are five times more uh, MRI uh, prescribed than in any country in the world. So one thing that is critical, and anyone who has a medical degree knows it, is that We win many many battles against diseases at primary care. And it is not only necessary to have care when you have an emergency, but you need to have a follow-up. Diabetes doesn't onset until the disease is critical. If you diagnose diabetes early, then you save a lot of money and a lot of cost in disability and mortality which also has an impact on the labor market and also the stability of the families and the society in general. So the root of a good uh, healthcare system is primary care. Primary care and continuous care and being able to revisit your doctor without the fear of having to pay or losing your insurance. Also the volume of Tests performed in the United States. It's crazy. Defensive medicine. United States needs, in my opinion, this is only my opinion, but I think United States needs to get rid of their defensive medicine. We, We don't need to. But the thing is that the change doesn't have to be only in healthcare workers because you can tell to a doctor, okay, don't prescribe this test. But then the doctor can tell you, what if the, this patient or this company sued me? We need to rethink the system as a whole. But I'm not saying that healthcare workers and doctors don't have a role on that, because we, we do. But it's a matter of thinking of a bigger change. And of course, that will pass by reinforcing primary care, ensuring not only emergency room, but continue primary care to everyone regardless of their labor status and also rethink about defensive medicine, definitely.
2: I feel like health inequities, if we delve into the definition, it can arise from social, economic, environmental, and health disparities and that can eventually affect our health outcomes at all levels like where you live, what you consume, the accessibility to quality food, care, safe water, the proximity to factories and polluted sites, the quality of education, social bonding and network around you, all these can work together to perpetuate structural inequities and hence affect health outcomes. And such structural inequities are ways of sorting people into um, resource reach versus resource poor settings, for instance, education in high versus low resource settings shape one's health and life trajectory in terms of employment, income, individual and intergenerational wealth, social networks, and employ, uh, and more, which in turn produce disparate health outcomes. Also, as we've uh, learned in uh, the core courses, Maternal mortality is the key indicator of health inequities, such as in terms of access to prenatal and postnatal care, insurance coverage, as you just mentioned, and cost burden. Thus, it shows the wide gap between rich and poor across racial and ethnic groups, between and within the state. Considerable racial and ethnic disparities in pregnancy-related mortality exist. Take New York City as an example. Disparities in maternal mortality are observed in which black mothers die at 12 times the rate of white mothers. According to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, within the country, black non-Hispanic women has the highest risk of maternal mortality. 42.4 deaths per 100,000 live births for this population. Can you imagine how incredible the number is? These disparities are so embedded in the system and are hard to be addressed and uprooted merely by the physicians. Being aware of the structural disparity is just the beginning, yet knowing is not necessarily doing. These need to be systemic collaboration at all levels. Public health, medicine, Institutions, state and federal policymakers, just to name a few. As stated by the World Health Organization, health inequities could be reduced by the right mix of government policies. So I think public health and medical practitioners and institutions should work together to come up with strategies and inform the decision maker, the game changer, namely the policymakers and the government of policy change to help address disparities from the upper stream?
0: Yeah, That's definitely. It. I think that like a lot of collaboration between different fields needs to happen. You know how in public health classes, we learn a lot about social determinants of health and like how, how that affects so many things like someone's health outcomes, their quality of care or their access to care. Sally, since you talked about like the health insurance loss and stuff like that, it made me think of um, my op-ed topic I wrote about the rising cost of drug prices in the United States. And what I learned was that the average American, they spend about 1200000 per year in prescription drug costs. Uh, and that makes the U.S. the lead in spendings on prescription drugs compared to all the other countries. Apparently, it's a mystery or it's not well disclosed how drug companies set up their prices. So the public and the, even the government They're not even sure how prices are determined since the companies have a monopoly on the costs and the patents. I think they mentioned how it goes into like research and development costs, uh, like insurers and pharmacy rebates or something like that. But then for like in terms of concrete numbers, nothing is really known. Uh, So like when I first was doing my research on it, I was like, okay, I mean, if these factors go into developing drugs, I guess it makes sense. If we want to like improve our drugs, it, it will probably have to go up. Uh, but then I also learned that sometimes the prices go up, even for medicine, that like nothing changes. Um, apparently, insulin has remained the same since the 1920s. I see Irene nodding. Okay, so <laughs> these are correct facts. <laughs> um, and it doesn't have a generic competitor or anything like that. And its price rose from like $120 in 2012 to almost 300 in 2018, despite like there's like no improvements and no one's competing with them. And so the prices, not only does it affect the people that need the insulin, but it also affects the hospital and the hospital budgets. So, and I found out that sometimes hospitals, they have to use alternative therapies or they have to cut staff in order to afford these drugs. So then now the healthcare is affected too. So if like the quality of care is going down and then no one can afford drugs, like how is anybody going to be able to deal with their health issues? Like Grace said, I think we need to work with politicians and like many other entities to, to solve all these different disparities in healthcare. And as we see, there's like so many big gaps going on. And in the end, I feel like it, further widens the gap for disadvantaged groups mostly, you know. and so I don't know if you're familiar with how it is in Spain about drug causes, Irene. I don't know if it's better over there. At some point,
3: but it depends. If something I've learned about that is that it really depends on the willingness of the government and authorities to negotiate and put boundaries to pharmaceutics. And that's something that not all governments want to hear. To give you another example, I don't have the exact data, but a few years ago, a new treatment for hepatitis C was developed. As in case you're not familiar with the disease, this is an infectious disease which transmission mechanisms are known, but not 100%. And it's a chronic disease that basically affects uh, your liver, causing chronic inflammation and leading to premature deaths within a few years. Until a few years ago, this disease was totally untreatable and patients, the only option that patients had was uh, liver transplantation. But then a treatment came out. And what is surprising about this is that this treatment has the power of saving the life of the patient, but not all countries had the treatment available. And when they had it available, it wasn't the same price for this treatment everywhere. For example, I think in Spain it costed around uh, 100,000 euros per treatment while in Egypt, it cost like 300. So you can see the difference was crazy. And I don't know how much this treatment costs in the United States. But what I want to say with this is that once the pharmaceutical has recovered from, it's true that developing a medicine requires the investment of um, tremendous amount of money. But once this investment is retrieved, there is no reason for pharmaceutics to charge this amount of money for insulin or like uh, other paracetamol or non steroidal inflammatory or chloroquine, for example. Any, any drug that has been in the market for a while if you see any statistics, you see that the revenue of the pharmaceutical companies is, I don't know how many times, but by far, many times that the money that they invest in research. So the key to this is setting boundaries, but is the government, I don't know, the federal government or like the local authorities or the, the, the national government that has to set boundaries to protect human rights, basically. Because it's not only the insecurity of not knowing if you will be able to get your dose of insulin next month, but it's the fact of families having to choose between treating their diseases or bringing food to their tables. This is a completely unbelievable thing in a 21st, the 21st century in the United States. And I can see from this data how this is happening every day in many families.
1: I think what we've all learned in Professor Sparrow's class during the core is that it's easy to think fixing one issue will lead to an easy fix for another, but it's really, really complicated. And so sometimes we think it's easy just to lower the price of healthcare, but then what does that mean for all of the healthcare providers? And what does that mean for the different networks? So I think it's a lot more complex than people tend to think. And unless you're doing this sort of deep dive and really getting a a deeper understanding of how the healthcare system
3: works, you'll
1: realize that it's just not an easy fix.
3: Absolutely, I completely agree with that. This is the change if needed requires expertise at all levels and multidisciplinary work. I guess what you were talking about, what we learned in the core, is unintended consequences. (laughs) Those two words have to sound very loud in our head when we try to fix, when we think about easy solutions for such structural problems. And in this case, I completely agree with you. I think from my perspective, there are things that truly need to change, but this change can only be successful relying on expertise and multidisciplinary work to address these gaps at all levels. The
1: second question says, I can see how it would be easy for tensions to develop between public health and healthcare workers. How do you go about establishing a healthy collaboration between the two professions,
3: medicine and public health?
1: What do you think, irene?
3: I see why the question makes a lot of sense. That is really true, not because healthcare workers or and medical doctors or or public health professionals don't have a good relationship it's because something that we learned from chaotic situations like the COVID-19 is that any workspace is loaded with fear, limited resources, people working tired and for 24 hours, and that can very likely lead to the development of many tensions. I think the answer to this is pretty easy and I think a, a very good way to address these tensions is to define what is your area of impact? What is your expertise? What are your roles when you are working together and respecting the work of the others? The same way we're not gonna ask a public health practitioner to do a perform a surgery, you are not going to ask a surgeon to ask to act as a public health professional. This is something, these boundaries are very easy to be confused during a chaotic situation when everybody just wants to get control. But I think working in an environment where the roles are well-defined and people respect the expertise of others, this is like the best working environment. And from my personal experience here where I've been working as a medical doctor, but with the lens of a public health physician and also doing some tasks that are like half a way between providing care and at the same time developing protocols or sometimes feeling like you are telling professionals how to work, not how to do the work qualitatively, but maybe how do you, they should protect themselves and also how, how they should treat the patients and what is justified, what is not, what is needed, what are the demands. It's very hard to be at the spot of so many things. But at the same time, what I've learned is that if we learn to respect the roles of everyone and we trust the work of others, the working environment can be great and the things can evolve and turn out right. And I will give you a very brief uh, example, for example, When we didn't know almost anything about COVID-19, and we were only relying on on data from China, and suddenly I arrived to Spain and we had to develop protocols for patient isolation. We were facing really serious shortages of PPEs. We didn't have respirators to use and throw away every time they were used. And this this led to a very, very uh, tension situation. There was a point when the system was so overloaded that we decided to implement a mandatory mask policy in the hospital. As you can imagine, the implementation of this policy from the public health practitioners, in which group I was, Mm -hmm. uh, didn't create a very good impact in healthcare workers that maybe they just wanted to attend the patients with a mask, but when they were with their colleagues, they, they just wanted to be able to have a chat without mask or to eat uh, without keeping the distance because it's very hard. And then they they have to make shifts for eating. This is, these are like really little details, but I can tell you implementing a mandatory mask policy when nobody was recommending to wear a mask in the general population was a real challenge. But at the same time, a few weeks later, what I did personally, I developed Uh, some materials, educational materials. I printed them out and I went with my folder around the entire um, hospital explaining everyone why they should use a mask. And I had tons of meetings and I was (laughs) very tired, but I can say that two weeks later, everyone was wearing a mask. We put controls at the entrance of the hospital. All the patients were wearing a mask. And we moved from nosocomial infections that were leaving us without healthcare workers to zero nosocomial infection. So this is a win-win. And then when healthcare providers, doctors, nurses, and workers, cleaners realized that they said, oh, okay, we need to trust these people. And then the roles and the expertise was settled. And from there, we could work perfectly. So I would say from this example, very, very personal example, respect, respect development of boundaries and the de- definition of, of skills and multidisciplinary work. That's the, <laughs> the only answer I can give.
1: You, you bring up a really good point about respect. And um, I, I like to say, neither of us have the whole picture. We both have pieces to the puzzle and it's only when we're able to come together that we can see what it is that we're working with. We, we can see this big picture. And so I agree that respect is a really big key in working together and creating a healthy collaboration. I also want to acknowledge that our work coincides because we're both serving the same people. You know, the, their patients are our patients in a sense, right? So naturally, I would expect there to be sort of a power dynamic between the two because you know, physicians are seen as more prestigious or elite in society compared to public health workers. And on that note of healthy collaboration, I think efforts to do so cannot and should not be compromised by the belief that one is better than the other. So it's so important that relation that this relationship between medicine and public health is not tainted by socially constructed superiority, right? Like we both play a very critical role. And I wanna to add to because earlier, the first question we addressed, we talked about um, social determinants of health. Consoria and Grace, you brought this up. And I think a part of building healthy collaboration is, um, I don't know if you've had this, Irene, but I, I'm not sure how much public health is emphasized in medical school. I'm not sure if like social determinants of health or environments or biological determinants of health are a part of the medicine, the medical school curriculum.
3: Yes, to answer your last question, uh, we have training in public health and epidemiology throughout the medical degree. The fact is also that we need to learn so many things that usually these subjects end up a little bit neglected. And something I want to add up on the last thing you said about the uh, feeling of superiority or inferiority of public health, that is something I have been seen since I started medical school. And I can tell you that for me, transitioning from being a medical doctor to a medical doctor it, with a training in public health has been a shock for many of my colleagues. Like I have heard many times, like you are very smart, you, you have very good marks. Are you really going to public health? And I had to probably <laughs> respond. Yes, I'm going to public health because public health is very important and public health needs good people. But if something, actually, if something positive we're learning from this pandemic is that public health is relevant. Public health is useful. Public health has to be valued in the society and in the science classes. I totally agree that medical doctors, nurses and healthcare providers and public health work has to be complementary. It's true that we act at different levels, but at the same time, it's true that we treat the same people the same way you're saying that. And that is something that we need to respect. And and also it's not only a matter that medical doctors are seen as superior, it's also a matter that sometimes public health people seeing themselves as inferior. And that is something that needs to change. It's not that our our work isn't as valued as saving lives because we're also saving lives. So we're serving people the same way other professions are doing and all professions should be the same way valued. The same way that nurses and midwives, their work has been not visibilized for many years and now it's time to visibilize their work. I'm not saying that the work of a nurse is more or less important than a doctor or a public health professional. I I believe we have to be all in the same line and it's something we're learning from this pandemic is that public health should not be in the second line for the good of the entire population. (laughs) And a, a little remark about what you firstly said about the education, I completely agree with you. There is a word I really like because I think it represents a lot what we need to do for the people and is empowerment. When you receive an order or a rule or something mandatory to do, you tend to deny it and just not do it. But if you empower people to understand why this is necessary, why this is good for them, then you, you get the key of the problem. Nobody that is that has an eating disorder like obesity or will realize that they have a problem until they understand the root causes and how they can address them. So for that, we need to take the time to invest the time in our patients, in our population, uh, from mass communication to individual meetings with your patients, take the time to empower. And that is something that I tried to do in the COVID-19 with the YouTube channel. And that is something that you also girls are doing with this podcast. And I think that's crucial because we are human beings and we are able to learn and act. And that's the key of addressing many problems, empowering people to, for them to understand and then act by themselves, not only imposed by others. And that is key.
2: I feel like to the general public, why sometimes they might feel there is a difference between healthcare workers and public health workers is that healthcare workers are often on stage, whereas public health workers are often behind the scenes. So sometimes when they put a lot of effort into um, public health infrastructure, people rarely um, can see it. However, These two groups of people are just focusing on health from different perspectives. One is from the perspective of individuals, whereas the other one is um, more focusing on the health outcomes of a general population. And um, since public health and healthcare workers have receive different uh, training and education. They might have different approaches in the face of similar health issues. But I do agree with you both because they're serving the same population eventually. Just like the anecdote from uh, Dr. Martinez Molata during the COVID pandemic, on the contrary, we individuals make up the population. So it is hard to disassociate one from another just as it it is hard to disassociate public health from medicine. Moreover, both hospitals and health departments are required to make health assessment and improvement plans. Um, meanwhile, both professions were bringing um, complementary resources, skills, and competencies, such as they can share some health data and skills to solve one health issue. This would uh, serve as a Opportunity for fostering a healthy relationship between global health and medicine and providing a more in depth evaluation and understanding of the community they both have committed to serve. Surely, there needs to be open and candid communication, mutual understanding of each other's world and skill sets, and more importantly, trust between the two professions. In order to work synergistically and efficiently to improve the health outcomes of the individuals and the population.
0: I agree with you all. I think we can all agree that healthcare is a very collaborative field and I really appreciate you Irene for uh, seeing how important public health is in uh, healthcare as well and you know letting your colleagues know as well (laughs) when you guys mentioned how there were like feelings of superiority or in and like how sometimes maybe us public health students can feel that too. I, I definitely understand it. I feel like sometimes I get this kind of imposter syndrome and I think it helps that like you guys said, mutual respect um, and that we all have this common goal where we focus on the community that we're trying to serve and not like our individual goals of like getting data or improving our resume and like building our skills or whatever like that. I feel like since we all specialize in different things, everyone relies on each other to bring something different to the table. The symbiotic relationship, you know, and like we're all working together. Uh, I know it's not like that all the time, which is why we're discussing this question, but uh, I think this is one way that I, like it makes me hopeful, you know, that once I go into the work field, we can all work together as long as we respect and have a common goal.
1: So I guess the last thing we can do is maybe just ask, you know, during this time of COVID-19, what is it that you want people to know? Or maybe like what piece of advice do you have for the public uh, before we let you go?
3: (laughs) Wear a mask. (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs)
1: you heard the doctor y'all wear your mask irene thank you again for joining us we know that you could have been doing anything else sleeping eating scrolling through instagram but you are here with us and we are so grateful thank you for sharing your feedback and experiences as a medical doctor and public health student A big thank you to our listener, Josh, for the question submission as well. We hope that you find these answers insightful, and we also hope that we can count on you to help build healthier partnerships between medicine and public health. For those of our listeners that want to check out Dr. Martinez Morata's public health communication efforts on YouTube, head over to our site at askyourphfriend.com and look out for that link. The YouTube content is all in Spanish. So for those of you that have Spanish-speaking friends or family members that would benefit from this, please feel free to share it and let them know that Dr. Martinez Morata has their
2: back. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you have a response to today's question, we want to hear it. Head over to our site and post your thoughts or submit your own question. This is Ask Your Public Health Friend, the podcast podcast. I'm Grace, and thanks for listening.